Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I cover another one of the models on Validia. This time we look at the contrarian investor model developed by David Dreeman, the now retired money manager who made a name for himself and defined contrarian investing. Jack and I discuss the recent and longer term performance of the model, what criteria sit at the heart of the model, and the types of stocks it selects. This is a model that many deep value investors may appreciate over time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion about Dreamit and his contrarian value investing approach. You can learn more about all the models, screens, and strategies on Validia. Please go to www.validia.com slash sign up. Thanks for checking us out. Okay, today we're going to talk about another one of the strategies um, on Validia, and that's the model um, by David Dreeman, um, a uh, longtime value investor, actually um, uh, one of the, I guess, early contrarian investors, which is what he was mostly known for. Uh, my first exposure to um, Dreamin was from his Forbes column. So he was a longtime writer for Forbes when they used to have columnists like Ken Fisher and, and, and Dreamin was in there. Um, and he would often write about value investing and contrarian investing. Um, interestingly, I didn't know this before kind of doing a little bit of research, but he was actually born in, I don't know how long he lived there for, but he was actually from Canada originally. Um, and then also in the, his early years as a sort of investor and analyst, he actually worked at Value Line Investment um, Services uh, in the early days. And then in the, in the mid 70s, he formed um, Dream and Value Management and basically ran that firm um, for a number of decades. Um, at one point in, back in the 80s and 90s, he actually had a, a very good track record. Um, in terms of the mutual funds that he ran, which eventually were bought by Kemper, which eventually were bought by a number of other firms and ultimately it ended up um, being bought and run by Deutsche Bank. Um, but I think at the end of his career, you know, it was just a very difficult time for value and value investing. I think he went through the financial crisis and held a lot of financials, which our model, which we'll talk about, also kind of t- tends to uh, pick up a lot of financials as well, given the criteria in it. So I think at the end, it wasn't a great period for, for, for Dreamin, but you know, his, his long-term track record, especially during the period where it was, you know, good to be a value investor, he was sort of top of the food chain in terms of his, um, his performance. And, you know, he ran some pretty good sized funds. So in terms of, uh, the strategy, Jack, we base our, um, Dreamin model on the new contrarian investment strategy that he wrote. And a lot of, what he also wrote about though was this concept of being a contrarian. So in some ways he was like early days on sort of some of these behavioral finance issues around, you know, investor psychology and looking to invest in beaten down unloved areas of the market. And that's really what this strategy tries um, to get at. Yeah, well, for, first of all, before we start, um, I've learned, the, the, you know, we always learn lessons when we prep for these. And the lesson I learned on this one is basically that I've been mispronouncing his name for 18 years. 
Uh, so I've been calling him David Dremen for, for 18 years, and in, in prepping for this, I've realized it's actually David Dreamin. So uh, I apologize in advance. I probably will call him the wrong name uh, throughout this just because it's hard to undo 18 years. But uh, yeah, we learn something every time we do this. But in terms of being a contrarian, yeah, you know, being a contrarian is, is there's two sides to it. One is it's really, really hard. Um, because by, by definition, if you're a true contrarian, you're going against the grain and you're going against the grain typically for a very long period of time. And, you know, being a value investor in the past decade is a good example of being a contrarian. You know, you, you were actually against the grain and you did it for a very long time. And some people are getting rewarded for that now. But, you know, I, I think so that's part of it is it's very difficult. But the other part of it is a lot of times people think they're contrarians when they're really not. You know, you have to to, to be a true contrarian. You, you have to really be going against what, what popular opinion is. And popular opinion tends to be right for short periods of time or even moderate periods of time or even in the case of the past decade, long periods of time. So it's just being a true contrarian. A lot of people call themselves contrarians when they're not. And when you are a true contrarian, it's really, really hard to do and it involves significant pain. Yeah, and I think that, you know, for Dremen, being a contrarian basically meant buying, you know, very cheap stocks based on some value, valuation metric, basically. And like you said, over the last 10 years, you know, that type of strategy hasn't really been a successful one. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, if you, if you look back at, you know, we now run 22 models on Validia, you know, some of them go back to 2003, others go to different dates. But if, if you were to look at those 22 models, the worst performing model across the full history in terms of an annualized return relative to the S&P 500 is this, is this model based on Dreamin. Um, and so that just shows that that kind of gets at the nature of being a contrarian because to, to some extent, you know, you would look at that fact and you'd say, all right, this model is not worth following. You know, you, we've now been running this model for 18 years. It's underperformed the S&P 500 by, I don't know what it is, a few percent a year or something like that over, over 18 years. I mean, if something doesn't work over 18 years, what's the point? You know, why are you not, why would you even possibly follow that model? But it also gets into the importance of, of digging beneath the surface and understanding why something is going on. So in th this particular model, um, is, is a deep value contrarian model, but because of the nature of some of its criteria, it also tends to select a lot of international companies that trade in the U.S., sort of the ADR type universe. And, and if you look at that universe relative to the S&P 500 universe, that universe in the past 18 years has been getting killed. And so in a lot of ways, it's sort of a misbenchmarking because th this model has been about 50% over the past 18 years, 50% in that international universe, but we're judging it against a U.S. universe. So it's had two massive headwinds against it. One is it's a deep value strategy. It's a contrarian strategy. And the other is it's been 50% international stocks. So Med Faber's talked about this a lot. You know, how long do you really need to judge, to truly judge an investment strategy? And, you know, he said he used to think it was 10 years and now it's maybe more like 20. And this is an example of that, because if you look at going forward and said, what, what strategy do you think might do best in the next 20 years? You know, I might rank this in, in the top half of our strategies in terms of ones that I think might do well because international stocks are very cheap, value stocks are very cheap. You know, this actually might be a strong strategy in the past 20 years, but if you judged it even over a period as long as 18 years in the past, you might say this is just a terrible strategy and it's not worth following. Yeah, what's interesting too is that from like 03 to 07, this was one of the best performing strategies, not only on a raw performance sort of uh, return calculation, but also on a risk adjusted basis. It was, you know, I think it had one of the highest sharp ratios during that period of time. So for us, we thought, you know, get, this was early days with our sort of investing experience, but you know, this stra strategy looked to be, um, you know, the one that we probably had the most confidence in. But then, you know, like you said, the last basically, you know, since really 07, 08, the strategy really has fallen on hard times, largely because of that international exposure, but also, um, it tends to uh, 
have a lot of financial exposure at different times. And obviously during the financial crisis, financials got crushed. Um, and Dremen actually himself had a lot of financials during that time. So our, our model was actually kind of lined up with what he was actually buying. And we know what happened with a lot of financials in the financial crisis. They really got, they really got clobbered. Um, and they really, you know, they've been, it's been a relatively underperforming sort of sector too. Financials haven't been one of the better performing sectors, um, over the last 10 to 15 years. So in terms of um, getting into the strategy, let's try to step through it. One of the interesting things with this is in terms of like the raw number of criteria, it might be one of the most, it might have, it might, might just have the number, um, some of the most investment criteria across all the models we run. I mean, I'm thinking of like this model, the Buffett model, maybe the fool, though they, they tend to have, you know, more than 10 different criteria that go into it. So maybe to start, Jack, why don't you open it up with some of the sort of core criteria and then we'll get into some of the other stuff. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting value strategy because like, like all of our value strategies, it's not just a pure value strategy. I mean, it has value criteria, but it also has a section that refers to, that really relates to earnings trend. And it also has a section that relates to financial strength. And so this is trying to buy high quality companies that are showing signs of strong earnings growth, at least in the short term, and that are also cheap. And so the first part of the strategy is the the earnings trend. But before we apply that, the first thing he does is he filters based on the largest 1,500 companies. And the idea here is that you, you can have less accounting gimmickry in these larger companies, and also you maybe get some higher quality financial data. I mean, I think that's probably a little less true today than it was when he developed the strategy. I think the quality of data is better as you move down the cap spectrum. But still, that, that was his idea, was to filter these companies where you know you're getting quality data and you're not going to have as much accounting manipulation. Um, and then there's two earnings trend uh, criteria. One is basically that earnings in the most recent quarters have to be increasing. So the most recent quarter has to be greater than the previous quarter. Um, and the, the second is that six-month earnings growth has to be good. And also analysts have to be projecting that that earnings growth will continue into the future. So he, he's looking for he's looking for these stocks that are out of favor, but he's also looking for signs that things are turning around. And that's what these earnings trend things are getting at. They're getting at signs that the, the business is actually growing, um, even though that the stock is out of favor. Um, and then the, the second group of criteria is the, is the main contrarian criteria, which is the value criteria. And, and this sort of, you know, we, we have strategies that explicitly call it a value composite, but this, this really is a value composite, not, not being called a value composite. He's looking for stocks that are in the bottom 20% of the market using four different criteria. The P.E. ratio, the price to cash flow, the price to book, and the price to dividend. So the price to dividend typically would not be in a value composite, so he's looking at it a little bit differently. And we'll see as we go forward, this strategy does have a dividend focus. Um, but in general, you're, you're looking for stocks that are cheap, not just on one metric, but are on cheap on at least multiple metrics. Um, and, then, and then the final section of the strategy is this financial strength uh, section. And this is where we get into more of the dividend criteria. You know, number one is he wants the ability for the company to raise its dividend. So he's looking for a lower payout ratio so that there's the potential to increase the dividend in the future. He's looking for high return on equity. He wants it to be greater than the top third of the market, which, you know, according to our calculation right now is above, say, 16 percent or so. Um, he's looking for pre-tax uh, profit margins um, between you know, at least above 8% and he considers above 22% to be really phenomenal. Um, and then the, the last thing is uh, he, he wants a yield that's above the market yield. So you see there's a, there's a few different yield criteria in there. So this is a dividend. You know, this strategy does tend to produce high yielding stocks with high dividend yields. If you think about those criteria, um, another area that this strategy tends to focus or, or find opportunities is in energy, which has also not been a great place to be. So when you think about low valuation, you know, decent quality in terms of some of the energy stocks, you know, have some of these characteristics. So, so that's also been, I think, a, a, 
an area of the market that this strategy has focused on and just hasn't been a good good uh, period for you know energy investments really over the past ten years or so. Um, so like you said, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a value strategy with this sort of quality. You have, you have the earnings component, you have the value component, you have some of the quality and yield, um, criteria that come in. So, you know, on the surface, it seems like this should, you know, be a decent strategy. Um, it's just the types of stocks I think it tends to focus on have been areas of the market that just haven't done that well over the, over the past decade. And so, you know, um, but that doesn't mean that the next 10 years or 20 years would be um, similar to that. So this could certainly, I think, turn around and, and, and do a lot better um, over time. It's funny, like if, if you wanted to build the worst conceivable investment strategy for what happened in the past decade, I mean, this might be it. You know, you're talking about deep value. You're talking about international. Like you pointed out, you're talking about high exposure to financials, high exposure to energy. I mean, this was basically every single place you didn't want to be. But like we talked about before, it's the amount of time you need to properly judge an investment strategy is really, really long. And so that doesn't mean that in the next 20 years, it might not be a very different picture. You know, if you're one of those people that believes, you know, value stocks are coming back and international stocks are cheap and emerging market stocks are cheap. If you're a person who believes all of those types of things, you know, th this may be a really attractive strategy, even though it has a terrible track record. And that's the hard thing when, when judging these strategies. You know, a lot of times when people go to our website and they try to look at our strategies, they'll immediately focus on, you know, what are the top performing portfolios over the long term? And, you know, a lot of those, because of what the nature of what the past decade was, a lot of those are, you know, growth or momentum or things like that. But that doesn't necessarily tell us that in the next decade, if we were to have a value, you know, outperforming decade, and who knows if we will or not, but if we do, you know, the, the top performers in the next 20 years are probably going to be very different than they were in the previous 20 years. And so that's the, that's the hard thing about factor investing is you can struggle for long periods of time and even very long periods of performance can't necessarily be something you judge a strategy on. Great. So we'll put um, a link to um, some of these resources in the show notes. Um, if people are interested in looking at the model, they can see it on Validia. And um, hopefully this has been you know, somewhat valuable in terms of understanding what a contrarian investor in value investing strategy um, looks like from a quantitative perspective. So thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.